Welcome to the Few Podcast. Never in the field of human contact, but so much owed by so many to so few. So you want to become one of the few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. Hear inspiring stories from the few and learn about what it takes to turn your dreams into a reality. It's a day for all Australians, isn't it? It's a day that brings us all together. Marvelous. Four, three, two, one. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Now with your hosts, Boo and Sean. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Few Podcast with me, Boo. And the uh, business superstar, uh, all-round great mentor, solid bloke, fantastic superhero, uh, Sean Silk. Hey, Sean, welcome back to another episode, mate. Great to see you again. Great to see you, mate. Thanks for that intro. It's almost like a it sounds almost like a superhero intro. That's uh, quite uh, interesting for today's uh, guest, of course. <laughs> Let's notch it up, mate. We're going Mark Two. We're going supersonic. We're going ballistic at fifty thousand feet. We're going to look at the world in a new perspective and share some pretty amazing insights to. Someone who's highly accomplished in their own right, but also had to deal with with probably some of the, the most challenging adversity a human and a patriarch or a father could go through. So th- I think there's a lot in a lot in this one for us today, Sean. I mean, I think we can all do with a, a bit of perspective and resilience at the moment. This COVID thing just doesn't go away over here, does it? Absolutely, absolutely, and it's going to be great to to hear you know, the story of overcoming that adversity because I think some people look at their own paradigm and look at it and go, "Well, woe is me," you know. There's all this stuff happening, and really, in the scheme of things, it's it's quite insignificant. And if we can change that perspective, it really changes our view. So, yeah, looking forward to today. Absolutely, anyone is capable to do anything. So, with no further ado. He's uh, made the effort to dial in from the US of A. Thanks so much for joining us today, John Eve, or as uh, as I know him, uh, Thor, the CEO of Afterburner. Mate, it's awesome to have you on the show. Thanks, Boo. Really excited to be here. Great to connect with you as well, Sean, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. So what have you learned about people, business, and life in the last 18 months since that uh, the first time you saw COVID on the news? Wow. (laughs) That's a great question to kick off with. Let's unpack it a little bit from my perspective. You know, obviously the most disruptive 18 months in recent history for every person on a personal level, from a community perspective, and certainly from a business perspective. And I think that disruption is always painful. Change is always painful, but it's where we get our most important lessons as well, right? In other words, it's from the disruption and from the change that we're able to see with more clarity the things that should be more, most important. And so for me, what that, what that implies, the last 18 months of disruption have really allowed me to refocus on my family after being on the road five days a week and working exceptionally hard for an awesome company and an awesome mission, and, and, and then get to reinvest in my family and learn how to have some of those same outcomes from home, just like everyone had to on virtual teams, and, and, and really getting into the art of what's possible. And I think that everyone would agree that pre-pandemic, we never would have believed that 18 months into this, the world wouldn't have fallen apart and that the economies wouldn't have, you know, just totally been destroyed by this much disruption. And yet here we are relatively unscathed, certainly some fallout and I don't want to diminish that, but relatively unscathed for an 18 month disrupted period. Absolutely. And particularly knowing a similar industry than you, all three of us are, where generally our business models were based on us getting up in stage in front of lots of people. 
how did you initially deal with that inability to to bring people together and actually run you know run the afterburner business in a way that it normally ran so coming out of 2019 it was the busiest year in our 24 year history it was the biggest team that we'd ever had we were setting up for an even busier year in 2020 and as you alluded to that meant getting in front of all these different groups a ton of travel we were setting up a summit between the ceo of intel the ceo of linkedin couple other CEOs, possibly the Google CEO joining us as well. And then some military leaders, think of the chief of staff for the newly defined Space Force and, and all these other great leaders that were going to come together in a live setting. And we were all excited about kicking this off in Q3 of 2020 and all these big plans. And of course, the pandemic changed everything. So f- right from the start, we just had to completely erase any sense of what we thought we were going to do that year, any sense of how we were going to make money and and any sense of how we're going to help customers. Because before that time, 96% of the time we were in front of a customer in order to drive the value alignment and discipline execution that we needed to with those teams. So clearly that's the, I suppose, the pragmatic response. That's what happened. But how did it feel when you realized that, holy crap, we've got to change this entire business model because it's just not going to work in this environment. Like, how did you actually feel about that yourself? And, and what did you do to, to move through that? And manage that within the team as well. It was really daunting, as you can imagine, because all of a sudden we had to think about, can the business and this business model even exist during this time period? And, you know, at the time we're all crossing our fingers and hoping that mid-July, this would all go away in 2020. And of course that wasn't the case. And then when we started to see that this was going to last longer, we knew that we had to shift the business model for posterity and, and for the long term. And so very challenging and overwhelming as we're entering this and and thinking about, all right, if we do shift the business model, what team members are still appropriate for this new world that we're entering and what awesome team members are we going to have to say goodbye to along the way that we never imagined we would have to without this level of disruption? How do we set the mission and the team up for success? So there's a lot of question marks around the next steps forward and, and none of it easy. I think what we fell back on as a positive and as a foundation is that there are some clear principles towards leading through chaos. And uh, we call that wartime leadership, right? Certainly members of my team know a lot about wartime leadership. They have incredible stories of leading through the chaos and high stakes environment that, that war entails. And they knew that that could be a superpower for our success and allow us to be more responsive and adaptive at this time than maybe some other groups. On the one hand, we were as overwhelmed as everybody and as challenged as every other team, maybe more so, certainly more so because of our business model requiring in-person engagement. But on the other hand, we were optimistic about using our principles and and our intellectual property and our experience from the past in order to weather this storm. I just want to unpack that a bit, Thor, because particularly in the business model that Afterburner has is not only are you disrupted in terms of your business model, but the people that you employ and utilize with an aviation background. A lot of the team have jobs in airlines. There's a much deeper reach to the personal impact for them as well. And when you look at businesses that are that are mildly disrupted, maybe they had to go from you know, selling in a storefront to selling online. I just want you to sort of unpack for people how you deal with it, because I don't think there are many businesses that are more disrupted than professional event services and aviation, and we're wrapped up in both. So what do you do? What's the mindset in terms of flicking a switch from this is bad to, oh, well, it is what it is. Let's go. 
Great question. So for us, it was everything challenging that you just mentioned. As you alluded to, we had team members that are not only wrapped up in our industry of professional services and an in-person environment. And oh, by the way, that's the low-hanging fruit for for the other groups that would, would be our customers to pluck that off and say, we're not going to spend on that this year. You know, We don't know where things are going. The easiest thing to remove is support from consultants at this point. And, and that you know totally devastated the consulting industry at that point in time. And then on top of that, we have team members that are deeply connected to the airline industry industry because some of them are working in both afterburner and then the airline industry as well. And then you add the third layer that these aren't just employees at Afterburner. These are team members that some folks have gone to war together. This is a camaraderie. This is a kinship that goes well beyond being you know, fellow employees. And uh, we're all used to being on elite teams and the calling that's required there and sometimes not making that elite team. And so we all understand the stakes and what takes place when we need to revise the team, but it doesn't make it any easier. And, it, and certainly it makes it very difficult with people that we love and care about and have had multiple chapters of success with now facing the end of uh, you know, working together. To answer your question about how we turn that corner, for us, it was by saying, all right, we can't change our circumstances. How can we use this as an opportunity and a foundation to reinvent everything that we do? How can we take our existing team and turn them into a new direction? If we always did in-person work, how can we translate that to virtual? How can we very quickly, if, if, how do we consider this a superpower for success? Because we have all this experience in in-person support and driving outcomes in an in-person environment to now translate that into a virtual setting with high production value, with high engagement. And then we said, why would this possibly be the most advantageous time for us to be afterburner and us to have the experience that we have? And we decided that quite simply, if we could just harness all the things that made us successful in an in-person engagement, translate that into a digital environment, do that quicker than the competitors, then we could find ourselves sitting uh, in a very positive side of this when it's post-pandemic right now, as we're exiting all the challenges of the last 18 months. So when you, you know, when you guys were thinking about, okay, this, this change we're going to make, and this is, a, I think, a, a mistake a lot of, lot of business owners, people making in these types of situations is, right, what we're going to do is we're going to get a Band-Aid and we're going to change our model to something, put a Band-Aid on it for a while, and we're just going to go back to normal, right? How did you guys approach that? And what is your new normal going forward? Great question. So it's, I would say if I were to debrief us on something to do differently from the last 18 months, we didn't consider the long-term uh, nature of this. And, and I don't think anybody really did. There's an expectation. I remember I said in front of the team back in March of 2020, I said, that uh, there's a rumor coming from our friends at the Pentagon that we're closing down businesses and we're closing down restaurants and really effectively closing down cities, metropolises for two weeks. And the team gasped and they said, no way could we shut things down for two weeks and that's got to be wrong. And, and so there's, you know, there's this, this strong sense of this, we can't really be going through this. And, and if we are, it's going to end in a month or maybe two. And so if I were to debrief us, I would say the writing was on the wall even early on that this had the potential to last longer. And I would have made an even more concerted shift into digital and been less reactive to the pain points at the time that our customers were experiencing. As it was, we built out software that summer, which is just awesome software to capture everything that we do in a virtual environment and digital environment. It's easy to display and interact with, uh, with customers. And so super proud of that. And then right now we are filming for our digital online experience, which is going to be used for training individuals, teams, and entire organizations against our methodology. 
And once again, all of this from a positive perspective came about because we were forced to think about things differently because of the disruption of the pandemic. Yeah, it's opened up so many opportunities, you know, particularly when you work in team environments and you realize that in the virtual world, actually, it's it's quite a good tool to work in team environments and a lot more efficient than than flying four hours across the country to sit in a room with people. You'll always get that energy and that, that's an important element to it. But I, I think we're going to have this norm of virtual connectivity and face-to-face, this sort of hybrid environment. Now, Sean, what, what do you, I mean, I mean mate, you're, you've, you've been pretty much counselling businesses for the last 18 months through this, right? So what, what do you reckon are some of the major issues that you've observed and dealt with? And, and Thor might be able to give us a few tips for those businesses on how to just flick the switch and change the mindset. What I've seen, first and foremost, is the, the biggest one is that, that mindset. If you get into a mindset of desperation or panic or denial, that's going to hurt you the most. You know, that's what I've seen with the clients that I work with in Wayne the Circle Group. We actually had our event March last year, right when COVID was happening. If it was a week later, we would have had to cancel it because it would have been shut down. If it was a week earlier, it wouldn't have been relevant. And I was up till 1.30, 2 o'clock each morning changing the content for the next day from what I was hearing from my members, the fear, the concern, and what I was researching and stuff as well. And I came up with a frame which was to be realistic but optimistic. And we really pushed that at the event that, yep, it sucks. That's how it is. But also be optimistic. It's not going to go forever, right? And don't go in there and be like, yeah, this is fine and stick your head in the sand or the world's falling apart. I said, stick with the, you know, because you're the leader of a team. And however you show up, they're going to respond in kind, you know. So, I mean, how have you found that? in your business and and your experience of this process too, Joel. Yeah, I think the perfect analogy that I can think of is is an emergency in the airplane. So as I think back to my first chapter of Flying Fighters and the way we train our new students and we tell them when you have an emergency in the cockpit, let's say you have an engine fire, there's typically two reactions that we're going to have to this moment. We're either one, go into panic mode and we just start moving our hands and start reacting to it and shutting engines down and and doing things because we just want to react right now. I want to take action. Or we go into passenger mode, which means now we are paralyzed and we're just kind of watching things unfold and we're, our eyes don't quite believe what our eyes are seeing and we're continuing to validate by looking around the cockpit at other things. And meanwhile, we're slowly descending into the ground during this time. I think the same can be said for leaders during chaos, that they fall into one of those, those two traps very regularly. That's a great analogy. And that's something I've observed in some of the bigger businesses. There's there's this real passive decision-making model that's taken over. There's like a no one's sort of looking at, well, what, what are the hard decisions we need to make to transform? Yeah, this this kind of neutrality that pervades everywhere. Obviously, mate, that analogy is a great one. But in your personal life, you've had your own version of, a, of some pretty serious firelights. Your uh, son was quite ill and you took him to the hospital at a very young age and uh, he, was, he was diagnosed with cancer. And then yourself, you weren't feeling that well and also had yourself diagnosed with the same condition. What, what do you talk to us a little bit about what must have been the most challenging chapter in your life, without doubt? Yeah, so this is back in 2010, Boo, and my son had a tumor in his lung that we discovered by accident. He was having an x-ray on his stomach after having a tummy ache, and uh, we took him to the doctor, and the doctor said, I'll do an x-ray. And they just happened to capture the fact that he had a tumor inside of his lung because the x-ray just included that portion of his body because he was so little. He was only three years old. 
And the doctors told us you need to come back right away. His stomach's fine. His, you know, his intestines are fine, but we captured something on his lung. And we watched that over the next couple of months. And we watched it move from a two centimeters to two and a half centimeters to finally three centimeters when we did this last scan. And that's what you're trying to avoid, right? I mean, that's our big fear was that it was something that was growing inside of him. And for a little kiddo, that's, that's a really big object that's inside of his lung. The same day where he's getting that scan where they said it's, it's grown, I went across the hallway and had visited another doctor in the same hospital. And I didn't feel right. I had some pain that I kept experiencing when I'd fly. It was persistent. It wasn't terrible, but you know, it was like a three out of 10 on pain when it would hurt, two, two or three. I, I talked to the doctor about that and he said, well, let's just do a quick scan. And they discovered in me a racquetball sized tumor that we'd never seen before. And so this is, we're discovering mine at the same time I seeing my son's growing totally separate tumors and they're not related whatsoever. But all of a sudden our family became really interesting in the wrong way to the medical community. I don't fathom that experience obviously having two kids of my own and I suppose one of our biggest fears as a parent is something happening to our to our kids, and for you to go through something like that yourself, you know, you you, you take it take it on. You know, you've obviously got to deal with it, deal with your own situation, your own mortality, all sort of stuff. But where did you find the the strength or resilience? And I'm sure it wasn't there all the time to go through that yourself, but also to be there for your son and your family and your wife. You must have had some pretty heavy conversations during that time. Very heavy conversations, very heavy thoughts at night. And to be honest, I, I didn't handle it really well. You know, a lot of people would say, well, you're a fighter pilot. You had 10 years under your belt of operating in a very complex, high stakes environment already. You're, you're prepared for this. And maybe to an extent I was, but I didn't feel like I was, you know, certainly nothing could prepare you for this. And I was just kind of a zombie every day. I would spend all night imagining the horrific futures that lay in front of my my life and in front of my son and, and wondering, you know, is our family going to be 50% less uh, a year from now? And, and then I would wait for the morning and, you know, just kind of pray for a daylight so I could stop going through this. And then daylight would occur and I'd be exhausted because I didn't sleep. And now I'm, you know, yearning for the, the night again. Again, and the whole process would start over. And so it was just debilitating and, uh, and, you know, just the biggest nightmare that you could ever be living. That's what I always tell folks that cancer patients will sometimes say they like the moment when they wake up from sleep, because in that moment between dreamland and being awake, they don't have cancer anymore. And it was all a bad dream. And this is, this didn't really happen. And they, everything's back to normal for that split second every single day. They just love that fraction of a moment where they don't have cancer. And then their mind truly believes that. For me, that was the worst part of the day because I would wake up and I'd have the same sentiment. I would say, oh my gosh, what a horrible nightmare. I thought I had cancer and I thought my son had a tumor. And, oh, but, but wait a second. I think I remember going to the doctor yesterday. I can picture everything. And I remember the doctor's name and I remember the test they did. And oh my gosh, I have cancer. And so I didn't enjoy that moment of not having it because it was quickly followed by the horror of everything that I was living through. So I wasn't waking up from a nightmare. I was waking up to a nightmare. And that was the, you know, it's like getting the news all over again every single day. And it was a fairly advanced stage of cancer too, wasn't it? It had been there for a while. It wasn't like a, a screening, routine screening, and oh, there's a little bit of cancer here. This was this was serious stuff. 
Right. Mine was very advanced. Stage four. Uh, it already spread to other organs, spread to other lymph nodes. And when we finally figured out what the type of cancer was, my prognosis was very poor. They told me expect to live about 18 months and uh, you have a 15% chance to live five years. You know, forget about being cured. And this is just going to be the challenge you endure from this point forward. And obviously that was 11 years ago and I have been cured since then, but I was not looking at that as an outcome at the time. Okay, so let's just let's just take that into consideration. So they said fifteen percent chance, right? Of what was it, five years? How the heck did you get into that top percentage? And how the heck do you believe that you actually overcame that when the specialists are all saying to you, "This is your prognosis," and uh, you know you've just basically got to deal with it as however it comes. Like, how did you? How do you feel you actually overcame it and beat it? I wish I had a magic answer for what I did differently, but the, the truth is probably not too much. You know, that what I learned through watching other people go through cancer, you can imagine I've met tons of people that had it, unfortunately, tons of people that eventually succumbed to cancer. I believe that you can will yourself into dying from cancer or anything. You can give up effectively and you, you can will your body into giving up. But the reverse isn't necessarily true. I saw many people that fought just as hard as I did, that had just as strong of a will to survive as I did, and yet their story didn't end in a positive way like mine did. So I don't have the special answer for what I did differently. I learned a lot through this entire process, and I probably had a more positive mental attitude personally than I started it with. And, and I'm sure that helped a bit because, once again, you can will yourself into a bad place. But I don't know why I survived. And that was, that was part of what my epiphany was on the other side of this as I tried to figure out why I survived. How long was that period and how was your son's treatment and going into remission as well? Was it fairly similar time frames or how big a chunk of life was this for you? So for my sons, it was very short, thankfully. And what it consisted of is surgery to remove a lobe of his lung. So they removed most of his left lung and then they sewed him back up and they, they of course, dissected the tumor at this point. And they said, it's a precancerous tumor. It's a big one. And it was becoming cancer. And you would have had that. We were really lucky to catch it. So great news for a young kiddo. He, he still has the growing capacity to, for his other lobe to increase and fill that space. If we were to have that done, we would just lose that lung capacity forever, but not so for a child who's three years old. So he has that benefit. So his story was just about recovery at that point from, you know, about three months into it onward for me. And I couldn't be happier for my son. And I said, if we have to trade my life for his, you know, okay. But I was still facing down death, you know, for, for all practical purposes, I was still on my deathbed from that point forward for about the next two years. And what do you learn from that? What's the feeling like when you, when you get the information that you're in proper remission now, what goes through your mind? I mean, you've, we'll never cover it in a podcast in terms of what the journey you must go on internally there. But what at the end of it, when you pop out of that tunnel, what's the pervading feeling? You sure do. You, you go through so much introspection and reviewing your life because you, at this point, that's all you expect your life to be. So you're really looking at your legacy. You know, imagine everything up until this point is your legacy and, and that's it. You don't have another shot at it. And so that's what I was considering at that point and what I was leaving behind and for me, it was a great quote that the dying have the most to teach us about life. And I think that's really true because when all the noise of life is stripped away, what we're left with as we're just surviving is what matters most. And it's what should have mattered most all along. But we, we only have little glimpses into that clarity. And I remember thinking during that two-year period, I'm getting a glimpse. 
I'm getting a glimpse into clarity that, gee, I sure wish I had pre-cancer. And if I ever get a second chance, I'm going to share this with the world because this is something that's so powerful and compelling and transformative for me that I, I'm going to tell other people about it. And I made a deal with God at the time. I said, I'm going to write a book if, if I get through this and just share all my lessons from this time period. If I don't make it through this, I'm not going to write a book because I want to you know, spend that time with my family. But that was the deal that I made at the moment. I think that's a great point too. I mean, we talk a lot about legacy in, uh, you know, what I teach and, and, you know, whilst it's a business group, but it's actually about growing people through the vehicle of business because everything is about us and the, the better we show up, the better relationships we have, the better businesses we have, the better experiences we have and becoming that, I suppose, that evolving into that really authentic version of yourself is, is really important. But one of the key things that I talk about with people is, you know, defining success on their terms and, and also what does that mean for them as far as their legacy? What do they want to be known for? Not what do they want to have? It's more about who do they want to become so that people understand who they were when they were alive and when they're not here anymore. And, and it's like we live in denial that at some point this sort of thing could happen to us and we may not be the person that actually survives. We could fight as hard as we possibly can and still not survive. But talking to your book, you know, I mean, the book I believe is called Survivor's Obligation. So explain that title. What does that actually mean to you and you know, what epiphanies came to you to really look at it in this way? So as I was going through treatment, I went through chemotherapy for about seven months and it, you know, it's poison in your body. It's like trying to kill a rat in your house by setting a fire, right? So you're going to burn some of your house down in the process. Hopefully we kill the rat first and we don't burn the whole house down, but it's a gamble either way. And so I went through the chemotherapy with a whole group of other people that were fighting cancer, some young, some old, but what was common for all of them is that they were, I was seeing them in their finest moment because each one of them was getting their own glimpse into what's most important. They had a sense of focus and clarity that I'm guessing they wouldn't have had like me prior to cancer. And so I'm seeing them in their finest moments as well. We we're all super optimistic. We all talked about what we do when we got better. And unfortunately, not every one of those people had that second chance. And uh, the next week we come back together and maybe somebody wouldn't be there and, and their fight was going downhill. And so that, of course, really struck me watching this take place. And now when I get the news that cancer's for all practical purposes behind me, most likely, I had to consider what that meant for me going forward. And there's something called survivor's guilt or survivor's remorse which is a psychological phenomenon where you actually feel guilty or you feel depressed because you survived and others didn't. Why should I get to survive? You know, what's special about me? These other people were amazing. And as opposed to being happy about it, you actually find yourself more depressed afterwards. But I didn't have that. I didn't have any semblance to survivor's guilt or remorse. I was so ecstatic I was getting a second chance. I was so ecstatic that I got good news that it was just the furthest thing from me. But I knew I had something unique. It wasn't guilt, but it was a sense of obligation that I was living the second chance that every one of those people would have given anything to have. And I got it. What was I going to do with it? As a survivor, that was my obligation to figure out and live up to what we said we were going to do in that chemo room. And I had to decide for myself, what did that mean? How, you know, heaven forbid, this cancer just be a blip in my life and I go right back to how I was living before. Not that I was living you know, a terrible lifestyle or anything beforehand, but I knew it needed to be different. And I knew I needed to live my life based off of a long-term vision for what I wanted to be and what I wanted to be known as and what I wanted to, more importantly, leave in other people throughout the rest of my life. What is that? What did you come up with? 
So I had a couple of, of epiphanies, you know, as you think about Boo said earlier, there's so many thought tracks that you're going to go through over two years, right? And, and so here's where, here are a couple of them. One, I had deep regrets in my life, but I was surprised at what the regrets were. The regrets weren't around my failures. And those were the things I was most concerned about. When I would fail, I would think, oh, what's everybody thinking? And, and how am I going to manage this? And how do I get through it? And I, I, I wish I wasn't so publicly failing and, and everybody's watching this. When I was dying, I could care less. Who cares what anybody thought about my failure? Why would I even count that anymore? Like that doesn't matter at all to me. What I regretted were those times that I didn't try. Those times when I thought I could do something, I would rather live in the thought I could do it then test it and find out I can't and then change your perception of me. I was doing all of this to manage other people's perceptions, I realized. And I was so mad at myself in that moment. And I said, this is, this is something that I've got to change. I can never live for another person moving forward if, if I get this second chance or however long I have to live. And then the other thing that I realized was that there were some periods I was really proud of. I had regrets, but then I also had periods that stood out as things that, you know, memories that I was really connected to. And once again, it wasn't the things I thought it would be. It wasn't the accolades. It wasn't the awards I fought so hard for. It wasn't, you know, to be able to say I'm a fighter pilot or now a CEO or these titles that we build up in our minds so much and we think are so important and yet matter nothing on your deathbed. They, you could care less about those things. But here's what did matter to me. When I was on an inspiring team on an incredible mission, whether that team was at the Air Force Academy and all of us banded together as a group and, and you fought to get through the school because it's not like college, you endure it and you have to get through it together. And I had incredible men and women that were at my side doing that or as a fighter pilot and having to figure out how to get through a program at 23 years old, flying upside down faster than the speed of sound, which I was terrified of just like everybody else was. And I had to get through it with this team and I was, I was so compelled by this group of people and this mission that I did things I never thought I'd be able to or the inspiring team I had at home, my family, and what we were accomplishing and creating life and all the amazing things that I was a part of and the memories I created with them. And I said to myself, if I have a second chance, I'm going to create those experiences. I don't care about the resume bullets. I want the life bullets. I want the experiences that I can create from this point forward. That's such a great reference. And we've heard it a few times, Boo, on the, the podcast that um, when people talk about the fact that it's, you know, that saying of, Better have tried than failed than not tried at all. And, and it's such a such a powerful thing because, as you said, the failures, it's us worrying about what other people think about ourselves. And we've just got to stop giving a shit about what anyone else thinks about us. We've just got to focus on what's important to me. And the important thing is taking that chance, taking that leap and, and ta making that, that step forward. I see to my kids when they have the fear of trying something new or pushing themselves it is such a human trait that we really do need to train ourselves out of it. And you had an epiphany, Thor, obviously, which is that moment. I think the being in the military obviously helps you a lot there because it, it deliberately tests you to your limits and pushes and pushes and pushes you to till you learn. But that's that's key. Something I'm really interested to just explore there is the sustainability of that epiphany because humans normalize to their environment, right? So it and you would see it on the back of your event, Sean, you see it on the back of events and people get so excited to have these moments and then it's like brrr, back down to, to that low bar and, and you're available for your family, you're the CEO of a, of a company that spans the world, you're on the road all the time, you made it into Ninja Warrior, uh, you're fit, you're healthy. I was reading a, a study that's been done over the last 20 years 
about high performers and they tested 638,000 people. And they said the average high performer can deliver 400% more than anyone else. So for me, you can effectively live four lifetimes if you approach life the right way. And when you look at your life, you are living multiple normal lives at once. Do you have to go through some cognitive process in the morning? Is it about momentum? What is it that allows you to squeeze so much into every day? It's an important question because uh, it's very easy to fall back into old habit patterns. Even with two years of enduring this this period and, and everything that comes along with the valley in life and thinking like, I'm going to be changed forever. It's very easy to get back into traffic jams and be angry again and, and let the little things in life tug at you the way they did before the this trial. And, and you always said, I'm never going to sw- sweat the small stuff again. I'm never going to worry about the little things. But you do. You go back into a normal mindset just like everyone else. You said it right. You normalize. So it's an active choice I make every single day that I'm going to earn this day. This day was not promised to me. I think about it every day, multiple times a day. And the way I frame it in my mind is that this is all really a fever dream. Like I'm not really talking to you. This isn't really taking place. I'm in a hospital somewhere and the real me is taking his last breaths. And the real story that would most likely to play out is the fact that it didn't go well and that I'm dying of cancer and that I'm, I'm facing all these things down. And this is my brain giving me one last glimpse into a different life and a different chapter. And I'm literally living out my dream every single day. And I have that conversation internally with my head and remind myself that I shouldn't be existing this way based on probability. And it's helpful for me to not fall back into those old behavior patterns. We have a saying at, at Afterburner, earn the day. We say it every day as we kick off our meetings. I carry around a piece of paper that says, earn it. I carried it on the Ironman triathlon that I went down to New Zealand and competed in. And I'd never run a marathon or a triathlon. And I was a terrible swimmer. I trained for this for a year on the five-year anniversary of getting cancer. No business doing it. I was terribly afraid of it. There's a strong chance I would fail publicly after saying I was going to do this. But who cares? Now, Now I'm on the other side of cancer. I got to live up to this. And I carried a piece of paper starting on that day that said, earn it to remind me that this is the second chance that others didn't get. And I should every single day seek to earn and live the opportunity that they would have. So I guess that's great advice for you know people that haven't experienced what you've experienced is to actually listen to the message there, you know, that earn the day, you know, make sure you're earning what, what's coming, not just floating along in the current in the river, is actually taking responsibility for what outcomes you want to achieve, you know, what your relationships want, what your relationships want to be like, what your business to be like, what your, your actual experience is, because I think people as you said, when you get caught in the traffic jams and people whinge about, oh, I hate this traffic. It's like, yeah, but hang on, you are you are the traffic. So I don't know why you're complaining about the traffic. You don't know what traffic jams are, mate. You live in Queensland on the beach. You're like, like Florida without traffic. So I'm not sure we can connect on traffic. I lived in Sydney for like 40-something years, so I, I do understand traffic. But um, but the point is that when people can, you know, get stuck in these these frames that they complain about the traffic, but the thing is you are the traffic if you're not, there in the traffic anymore the traffic doesn't matter and one of the decisions why i nicked off for, for uh, three years ago for a year around australia in a caravan was to actually get out of that was to get out of the traffic because i needed to change something i needed to change my viewpoint i'd never had a four-wheel drive never had a caravan never done anything like that 
There's a certain irony about going on a car trip. Is. Yeah, but when you're in the middle of Australia, it's a very big place. I can tell you there'll be times where you drive for 40 minutes or more and not see one car and you're doing 100 k's an hour down the highway. It's insane. But as soon as you get out of the city, it's not a problem. The thing is that it was about changing something. I really needed to rattle my cage. Now, some people don't. Some people could make more subtle changes and, and find that. But for me, I found myself kind of feeling stuck in the traffic and stuck in that momentum of the decisions I'd made in the past. So I had to create my own moment of really shifting my perspective on on things. And I think that whatever that is for the individual, you know, Booze, yours was different to mine and, and obviously Giles, yours was different again. But all of those things, I believe, will have that similar impact to be able to get you to reevaluate what am I doing? Why am I here? And, and is, is what I'm doing actually, am I floating along or am I actually powering along and swimming in the direction I want to swim? I think that's such an important point, Sean, because sometimes people listen to my story and they think I'm going to get some lessons from somebody who had a near-death experience and you know it's, it's a little bit uh, outside of my life experience and so I'm just going to listen and maybe glean something from it. I would challenge that in a big way. I have a dramatic story that is interesting because it's full of twists and turns like a, a Hollywood movie, but I'm not unique. In other words, everyone is a survivor. Everyone can think back. If we had a podcast with each of you, we could tap into it and we would talk about some primal things about why you were stuck, Sean, and what you had endured and what you were trying to change in your life and what you had survived and, and now find yourself on the other side of. And so I think every one of us carries that obligation. That's, a, that's my message at the end of the day. This isn't about having cancer. This is about having hardship, which is what life is all about. There are valleys in life. We can't escape them. But the beautiful part about that is that the valleys can be the most transformative if we allow them to be. And it can be the way that it doesn't define us in a negative way as we continue to get bitter, but we use it to get better and define us in a positive way and work backwards from that legacy that we want to leave. So tell us a bit about what it was like growing up, mate. What was the motivator to become a fighter pilot in the first instance? And obviously we have a parallel in our lives in that we're still in service to that role today. So it's a huge part of your life has been defined by being in the cockpit of that aircraft and the skills that you have beyond the stick and throttle. What was it about growing up that set you on this pathway? So Nothing that consequential. In other words, there's not a, like a pivotal moment in my life where I knew I wanted to be a fighter pilot. I think what it is for me, much like most people, is that there was just a calling for something more. And sometimes it's called the hero's journey, right? There's a, a great book by Joseph Campbell called The Hero of a Thousand Faces. And it's all about how throughout history, there's a call to be something more that each of us gets, the call to adventure. And the adventure doesn't have to be a fighter pilot. It can be in art. It can be in relationships. It can be diving into the human mind. But whatever it is, it's getting outside of your comfort zone and reinventing yourself in a new way that's exciting and connects to your passions and connects to you at your core. And so for me, being a fighter pilot was one of those things. And I like to tell people that being a fighter pilot was just a chapter of my life. It's not the book. I'm not defined by being a fighter pilot. I hope I'm never defined by any one thing. I want to reinvent myself and have 10 chapters in my life, you know, God willing that I live that long to be able to do that. But it's always about escaping my comfort zone and figuring out how to connect my next chapter and the thing I want to do with doing the things that I'm afraid of. There's another great quote that uh, hell is defined as the following. On the day that you die... The person you became meets the person you could have become. 
And that resonates with me so much that especially after having cancer and almost having had that moment take place. And, you know, I was reconciling the person I became with the person I knew I could have become. And it, it, it was a little slice of hell as I was reviewing that. And I think we all have a chance to rewrite that story, especially if you're hearing this right now and you're above ground. We have a chance to change that. What I'm hearing, Joel, is one word is choice. You can either choose to become that person or you can choose to do nothing and not become that person. But I think a lot of the time people get stuck in the fact that oh, I'm just I'm not going to do anything rather than choosing to do something. But they don't see the fact that doing nothing is also a choice. Panic or passenger. Exactly. Own it. Yeah, and I think I think people fall into that trick around that life is a movie, like they watch a movie and they watch all these high points in an hour and a half and they go, oh, I can't do any of that. They miss the fact that the movie is a snapshot of 50, 60 years or intergenerational. So when it comes to making some of the bigger decisions or the bigger impacts, how do you break it down, Thor? How are you able to to figure out what to do today to achieve those big outcomes years down track? So it, it goes back to what Sean said earlier. You have to begin with the end in mind. In other words, there's a hundred things we could or should do, and you can make a case for any different path that's, you know, you could connect with emotionally at the moment right now. But if we start with the end in mind and say, what do we want our legacy to be? And of course, go beyond the accolades and, and really it shouldn't even include accolades throughout the titles, throughout the numbers, throughout all the other things that we think are important. Let's talk about impact on your family. Let's talk about impact on other people's lives. Let's talk about what people are going to say about us after we are gone and what we want to be defined as uh, at that point. And then also the other thing I would add there is everyone's a little different from what they connect to and everyone's a little different from what they're, they're ultimately passionate about. So think about that. What are those things where you keep getting drawn into certain areas? For me, I know what those are. It's, it's adventure. It's being a teacher. I, I'm very much somebody who synthesizes disparate ideas and tries to simplify them for groups, whether I was doing that as a fighter pilot and training new pilots or doing that now through consulting for business models or doing it as a life coach. All of those things really resonate with me. And then I'm a lifetime learner as well. So I don't purport to have all the answers. I'm always trying to find two groups of people that I'm connected to one group where I'm leading the pack, where maybe I've had some more life experiences and they can learn from those. And I can, I can learn how to simplify that process and, and how to ease their path to where I'm at. And then the other group where I'm dragging down the average, where they're all mentors for me and I can learn from them and they make me get outside of my comfort zone and tell me how to improve. All of those things are part and parcel for me with the type of legacy I want to leave. So if I know that going in, then that helps to inform what type of path I'm going to take today and what things I'm going to go after. How do I connect to adventure? How do I teach? How do I connect all of this to a purposeful life? So it's one thing that that's came up then from what you were just saying, Joel, is how important have other people, mentors, guides, and that been in your journey and obviously continuing in your journey at the moment? incredibly important. You're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. As I said earlier, I try to find a group where I'm dragging down the average and some would argue that's not too tough for me to do, but I find five other people where they are, you know, they're doing things that I already want to do. 
I think the most, one of the most destructive things you can tell kids, and we do it all the time, but we don't know what we're saying, is we say, you can be anything. You know, you hear it at a high school graduation address and you say, the sky's the limit. You can do whatever you want to. Just go, go pick a path and start down that path and go after it. And for every Zuckerberg who does that and builds Facebook, there's 999,000 people that have no idea what they're going to do next. And they find themselves in a bad place in their late 20s because they didn't have a system or a mentor or a path that it was able to be laid out for them. I think it's much more constructive to say, you can do whatever you want, but you have to be very deliberate about the path you choose. And you probably don't have enough information to make that choice for yourself right now. And if we all can concede that at any point in our lives, that there are some things where we have adequate information to make those decisions, others where we're going to have to go find out you know, people who have done that and gone along that path already, then I think that's half the battle. And, and so for me, I'm always seeking out mentors. I'm always seeking out a person who's in a place where I want to be and just say, tell me the path that you would recommend that I take to get there. And you've got some pretty powerful mentors, mate. I mean, you've got like the CEO of Intel as a, as a mentor. I think it's really important to also highlight that. Let's have a look at big organizations. And, you know, if you've ever read Sapiens and they talk about corporations and businesses, how they're, they're nothing. They're, they're like a, a just a, an imaginary thing that everyone gathers behind. Consulting at the biggest level at the, at the C-suite, CEO of some of the world's biggest companies. It's all just people at the end of the day, isn't it? It definitely is. People, and then I would say principles. So people in the sense that it comes down to people being aligned and the people having the right communication track in order to, to be successful and the keep people having the right perseverance and the characteristics and, and building a team based off of common cultural aspects. But then it's also the principles to guide them. And that's where the consulting comes into play. How can we help instill time-honored principles that help to navigate chaos, whether that comes from a battlefield and we, you know, people study Sun Tzu from thousands of years ago to understand how he was successful navigating the chaotic complex environment that he came from. And we do the same thing today as we look at the battlefield and translate those lessons into the boardroom. It's amazing, isn't it? I'm just going to keep throwing stuff at you, mate, because I know I know some of the things that you've observed through the Afterburner stuff. What do you think the impact has been on productivity and focus with all the digitization and the whole digital revolution? What do you think is happening in terms of the ability for groups of people to get things done? I have some really specific thoughts on this. I feel like we are very often drowning in information today. How many instruments did you have in your cockpit, Boo, when you left the cockpit? Or in the fighter cockpit, how many instruments did you typically see? There's really seven key instruments. How they're displayed is kind of different. And, and there's always the art of great fighter jet design is making that as simple to tell you as much as possible with the least amount of stimulation. Right. And, and you got to the point that, that I was going to get to because right before that, you know, we had 300 instruments in the cockpit. We had 350 things to look at when I went through it. You know, a switch, uh, a gauge, a, you know, and half of them I didn't even know what they did by the end because we, we just never used them. And I think that's a good analogy for where humankind finds themselves today. 50 years ago, we weren't drowning in information. And this is the information age, but it's not the knowledge age. It's not the wisdom age, right? We talk about having access to all that information. So I think it's an incredible tool to have a magic device in each of our pockets right now that can answer just about any question we could ask it. I think we missed that fact that there's a phone that we can ask, you know, go type in Google any question that we want. We're going to get a reasonably good answer from it. And, and it wasn't so long ago we didn't have that. 
but are we any better off or, or wiser as a people because of it? I think what it's highlighting is while it's great to have access to all that information, it's how we arrange it in our cockpit. It's how we arrange it in front of our teams. It's how we arrange it in, in our own heads mentally. And you know that the new generation of aircraft, to continue this analogy, they went from 350 instruments. If you get into an F-22 or an F-35, they're going to only display like five at a time. It's just blank canvas. And nothing's going to show up unless it's out of limits or they know that this is the important thing to look at. And so it's not about having all this information. It's about assessing and discerning what's the right information to put in front of my team. And I think that's the most insightful thing when you come with a background as a fighter pilot, but also just in aviation, is you, you really understand the importance of distilled quality information and context to make a decision. Whereas organizationally, it's just, again, it's it's just information. Meetings are just opinions and overload of information and the poor old leaders are, are trying to make decisions and their strategies too loose and therefore it doesn't set everyone up on the right pathways to go find the right information and it becomes quite chaotic. I feel like it, organizationally, people don't understand the value of contextualized information to, to make those decisions and deliver much bigger impacts. Do you, do you see a similar thing? Totally agree. And you find it even just in a presentation, the presenter will inundate the crowd with information. They'll just spit as much as they can at them because they think more is going to be better. And they're going to think I'm smart and that I know about this and that I've got a complete plan if I just throw as much at them as possible. And that's an antiquated mindset. It did work in the past. Here's the problem. They were right when we were moving from the Wright brothers plane with no instruments to the World War I planes with like three or four instruments. All of a sudden we're like, wow, minds are blown. We have this new instrument. I know what my altitude is. I'm not going to go into the cloud and think that I'm about to crash because I know I, with confidence, I know exactly where I'm at. So as we slowly added to the information, it increased our situational awareness every time we got a new instrument. The problem is there comes a point where you get diminishing returns and not only diminishing returns, but negative returns from giving more information out to the crowd. And so the mental switch that has to take place is just like an air aircraft design, we have to think to ourselves, how can I simplify this? How can I give them less? How can I rely on the fact that human beings need to hear things seven times before they remember them? And there's no way I can say this entire 40 slide presentation seven times to them. So I better whittle it down to the critical few before I put it in front of them. Absolutely. And I, I'm going to actually talk a little bit to the, the opposite of this, obviously dealing with small businesses. It's the complete opposite. They're flying a plane and the, the dashboard is blank. There's no instruments, you know, so they don't know. And it's nighttime and they're not near any cities or anything. So they don't know how high they are, how much fuel they've got, how fast they're going, or they're going to crash into the side of Mount Everest, right? This is the challenge in a small business environment is not enough information, not enough ability to look at your gauges and understand that. Having you know, learned earlier in my life to, to fly at least a, a small uh, Piper Archer, I understood the, the need to look at uh, the gauges when my dad took me out for an exercise and went, right, mate, just look out the window and pull back on the, on the stick. And so I did. And eventually we just stalled and fell out of the sky. I didn't expect it to happen. And the next time he said, look at the gauges and watch the, um, you know, watch the airspeed. And as soon as it hit the little red dots, it started to shudder before it fell. And you push forward and you could come out of the stall. And it was just like, that was the analogy about if you don't have information, you don't know when you're going to stall or when you're going to crash, right? And so in the small business context, it is so important to find not your 350 bloody metrics, but get five to seven just to start with and go, right, what are the most important? And then change them. If something's more important, don't add, replace it or refine it 
don't just build it up to be because it's uh, that's what you need to fly the plane. When you're landing a plane, we, I used to teach students all the time on a landing plane. I've taught thousands of students how to do that. I could say to them, I want you to look outside. I don't. I want you to look out for birds. I want you to look back inside your engines, make sure that they're in good shape. I want you to look at your altitude, make sure you're on three degree glide slope at this point. I want you to look at your airspeed and make sure that you are slightly above stall speed, but not too fast because I don't want you to have too long of a runway uh, landing down there. I want you to be about 150 feet above the overrun as you cross the threshold. I want you to start pulling your power back. That would blow their minds, right? And this is the equivalent of a startup. This is a new student. I don't tell them any of that. Even though all that's important, I say aim point airspeed. Two things I, would, I want you to care about. Where is the aim point? If you do nothing else, where will you land the plane? Where you come into contact with the runway? Make sure that's part of the runway where your aim point is right now and your airspeed. If you look at just those two things, then we're going to have half the battle towards getting the plane on the ground. And it's the same thing with a small business, right? You're giving them just enough to keep themselves safe and telling them what to look at because everything is so noisy and exciting and enticing that you have to direct their energy into that direction. I couldn't agree more for those small businesses. They they need to know. They need the two instruments staring them in the face at all times. I love that analogy. And yeah, as I said, having flown, my dad's been a pilot his whole life. So very, very fitting that the analogies that seem to have seem to created related business relate to flying as well, because it makes just makes sense. So clearly, you know, there's been a, an incredible journey, challenges, successes, evolution of you and who you are and how you show up. And, um, you know, you come across as someone who's very, very inspiring at, at what you do. And clearly to be doing what you're doing and to be leading the afterburners business, plus all the other things you've done, you know, you've learned a lot in your journey. And, and I'd, I'd love to know if you're going to take some of those lessons or particularly one of those lessons back to a younger version of yourself and teach that to yourself, what would that lesson be? I would say that true happiness comes from one of three things. I call them my three G's, growth, giving, or gratitude. True happiness for me comes from getting outside of my comfort zone, changing myself and the journey, not the finish line, but the journey of improving myself and, and earning mastery in something, whether that's business or my team, and a little bit each day, investing my time to get a little bit better. There was a point where I was really not getting better as a pilot. I was 10 years into it. I was very, very confident flying upside down. I could do that three feet away from the other plane and it looked cool and I'd sign autographs and I'd go do flybys, but growth was no longer occurring. And if I was being honest, it wouldn't make me that happy. I was wishing that time away, right? So that's the important piece, getting outside of your comfort zone and realizing there's probably a barrier of fear between you and what you need to do and, and just figuring out around that. Giving. Giving is critical because it's, you take out the aspect that's just about you. Growth is about self-improvement. Growth is about climbing to the next summit. Giving is about looking behind you and putting a hand back and saying, let me help you up. It's very selfish, right? Because when you give, you actually see and pause for a moment, see how high on the mountain you are. And you, you get to say, wow, I've been giving myself a hard time, but I can help out all these other people behind me and feel really good about, uh, about easing their path along the way. And the last one's gratitude. And, and this is simple and it's cliche, but it's just so powerful. There's a great quote that comparison is the thief of all joy. And that means that we're really only unhappy when we compare ourselves with others. And if we're being honest about it, we'd be ecstatic because if we were comparing ourselves against the whole of humanity, you mentioned sapiens earlier, but in the great book, if you're comparing yourself against the whole of humanity, you realize that we live in a tiny little sliver, like one generation out of a million that has things as well as we do. Quite literally, you know, whatever you had for breakfast, you probably got food from multiple continents, right? That's how a king or queen would have lived to get ingredients from, you know, Italian wine tonight or wherever 
whatever you're going to have. This just doesn't exist except in this time frame. The level of peace we have, the level, the level of technology integration, the lack of poverty, everybody's fed for the most part, reduction in diseases, antibiotics to kill bacteria. And we just take all of that for granted. And we're all unhappy, though. I think I don't think happiness has gone up, right? Because we still compare ourselves against each other and against our neighbors. And why don't I have that job and that car and that thing? And so we miss the fact that we're comparing against the wrong standard that for the whole of humanity, we have things incredibly good. So if that's not the answer, if comparison is the thief of all joy, then I believe the opposite is true, that gratitude is the source of joy. And that choosing to be grateful every day, and it, once again, it is absolutely a choice and it feels redundant and it feels silly when you wake up in the morning to say, here's the three things I'm grateful for. But if you do that enough times, it changes your mindset. And that wraps up another episode of The Few. Thank you to our partners, Afterburner, for team building, development and alignment. We understand now how important it is to have the right people around you. Get them on board with where you want to go. Momentum Media, the largest industry publisher in the country, connecting your business to the Australian community. ICMI, Australia's premier speaker bureau, representing the few that do fulfill their life's purpose. And finally, Sean's Inner Circle the business coaching organization for small and medium enterprises looking to make that next step. Thanks again for listening in and downloading today. Please leave a review on whatever platform you are currently listening to this podcast and reach out to our partners who can help you make the transition to the few. Yeah, it's a great habit. I heard someone say once, enjoy comfort, but don't become comfortable. Yeah, I love that. I've never heard that. Mate, thanks so much for coming and joining Sean and I on a few podcasts today. No doubt you've got to go smash out a workout and solve the world hunger problem but no it's been really inspiring mate i know exactly where you're coming from i would never couldn't even connect with what it must have been like your journey from a cancer survivor and what it means to fulfill the obligation as a survivor so thanks so much for coming on the show really appreciate it joel Boo and Sean, great chatting with you. This is awesome. This has been The Few Podcast with Boo and Sean. If you've got value from this episode and you would like to support us, please share it with your friends. If you're posting this on social media, use the hashtag The Few so we can see who's listening. The Few Podcast is recorded at Momentum Media in Sydney, Australia. To listen to more episodes, visit us at fewpodcast.com and make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Dream big, keep pushing, and one day you can become one of the few. We'll see you next week.